Well, we decided to be very kind to Brother Ingram and not give him the graveyard shift of the afternoon service. Uh, all three days he gets to escape that. And so that is our... Now, how many of you ate maybe a little too much at lunch? Just be honest, anybody? Oh, okay, thank you. Brother Reed, at least one... Did you have ice cream out today? Did anybody have ice cream? Uh-huh, well, that could be a problem. I think we got to, just to keep you all awake, we need to mix this up. All the student rows, you go to the other side. In other words, this side goes over here, and this side goes over here. Just get up and go, okay? <laughs> I know this is complicated, but I know you can do it. Yeah, just duplicate your role on that side, just straight forward, just go. Now, honestly, folks, I didn't think it was that difficult. Well, that helps all of us as we teach class to understand what we're up against. All right, have a seat. I realize this is really complicated. You know, okay, let's all be seated. Just take a seat. You know, I really don't like the way this looks. Let's go back to where we were. Okay? Go ahead. Go back. <laughs> Let's do a better job. Let's get there fast. Let's see what we can do. Come on. Very good. All right. We were a little more organized that time. Okay. I know that surprises you that I would do that. But anything to keep you awake. Okay. <laughs> Because I do have more of a teaching than preaching message, but of course, you know, that's always the pastor will say that, and it'll end up being quite a preaching message. But uh, I do have something that I think is very key based upon what we heard this morning about the deliverance that God wants to give us. And I want to give you the theological basis for the deliverance that we have in Christ. So I really want you to get out your Bibles, get out your notes if you can, if you have that in your pen, because. This is, is a teaching message, and uh, that's why we did all the whatever there and just a moment ago to try to get you awake so that you would be able to listen. I want to ask the Lord here to direct us during this time because these, this chapter changed my life first as a college student and then later on again as these truths began to explode in my mind and heart. And I... Uh, you hear regular messages on it, but it hasn't been for a while. Lord laid this on my heart. So let's ask God for His illumination. Now, Lord, we do need Your strength to be able to focus on truths that are not humanly understood. Lord, these are not naturally discerned. They are spiritually discerned. And we ask for Your illumination. Give us hearts that are open. And Lord, would You work now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, an S-4 submarine was rammed by another ship and quickly sank. The entire crew was trapped at the bottom of the ocean. It was a prison house of death. Ships 
rushed to try to rescue it uh, off of the coast of Massachusetts. We don't know exactly what took place down in that sunken submarine, but we are sure that the men, I'm sure, clung bravely to life as the oxygen slowly gave out. One diver that went down placed his, his helmeted ear to the side of the vessel and listened, and he heard the tapping of Morse code. And what was being said by one of the sailors there was, is there any hope? You know, most believers feel trapped in our fleshly body. And I would say most fundamental believers wonder if there is hope to have genuine victory that they hear about all the time. Well, I got good news for you. There is great hope. In fact, absolute confidence can be ours. But the reason for hopelessness is caused by the power of sin. Folks, sin is powerful. Look at our world today. Look at the perverseness of the thinking of our day. Look at the history of man. It's a tragic uh, set of episodes of the awfulness of sin. And what happens is believers get this sense of hopelessness. We resolved scores of time to give up a particular temptation, and yet it comes back. Satan comes to us and says, you might as well just give up. You'll never overcome that sin. Many of you probably are thinking that way, even in the midst of some encouragement about the Christian life. And that satanic deception has to be overcome for our lives to stay consistent and have the power of God. Now, it is true, as we heard in the morning, we cannot, in and of ourselves, solve our sin problem. But the fact is, we are alive unto God and dead to sin positionally, and it must be practical. If you look with me at Romans chapter 6, I want to look at just the first part of verse 14, and then we're going to be going through a number of verses. But the theme for today is, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Now, I want you to say that with me. All right, everybody there? Romans chapter 6, verse 14a. You ready? For sin shall not have dominion over you. One more time. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Praise the Lord. We're under grace, as the rest of the verse says. Sin did and was our master before we were saved. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were cut off completely from God as far as any kind of relationship of deliverance. Now, God, of course, loved us and was drawing Him to Himself, but uh, we were in a terrible position in which sin was completely our master. And so once we get saved, the flesh still has the sin principle that still has that whole perspective, if I can use that term, of the reality of sin being the master. And as um, uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, to realize the truths of Romans 6 takes us from that old sense of hopelessness, which we have all known and felt because of the terrible power of sin, 
and brings us to confidence. How does it work? It works this way. I lose my sense of hopelessness because I say to myself that not only am I no longer under the dominion of sin, but I am under the dominion of another power that nothing can frustrate. However weak I may be, it is the power of God that is working in me. Now, what we're talking about this afternoon, young people, is fact. We're talking about something that's already happened. We're talking about a reality in your life as a believer. This is not something that one person has more of than someone else. This is all what we have because of Christ. And these are truths that you've got to just get deep within the DNA of your spiritual life so that you think and operate that way. Now, as I mentioned, sin, we were under its slavery. We were inescapable. Um, down in um, verse 17, it says, uh, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. We were the slaves. That's the word of sin. And so when sin is your master, you respond to it. You have to. A slave has no other option. When you're the slave of sin and sin gives a command, ye submit and comply. We could have a tragic testimony time of how many in the past have allowed sin to be the master. And even with the desire not to sin, you capitulated. You allowed that sin to be the master in your life. And many of you in certain areas of your life have a hopelessness because it seems like sin is still your master. Well, I got good news for you. Not so. Not so. So if we're going to understand this, we need to, number one, this is my point, I'm going to restate myself, we need to understand the victory first. You cannot claim the victory until you understand the victory. Consistent victory over conscious sin is the glorious privilege of every Christian. The consistent victory over conscious sin is the glorious privilege of every Christian. So let's understand the victory. Now, to understand the victory, we've got to not misunderstand Christ's work. And that's dealt with in verses 1 and 2, responding to chapter 5. Don't have time to go into all of that, but let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin... Live any longer therein. Now, the great victory in Christ, we all understand. We understand that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. He died for all of our sins. And there is this understanding that since salvation is not by works, it is by grace, and that we cannot lose our salvation, one of the deceptions of Satan is that, well, it's inevitable to sin, and thank the Lord that you are going to be forgiven, you have been forgiven, and, uh, and so it's just part of the Christian life, you're going to have lots of problems with sin. Well, what does the Scripture say about that? God forbid. Don't even dare to think that way. You see, yes, you do have everlasting life. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad He does forgive? Some of you may have had some things that are causing your heart to ache from the last few weeks, but God's already forgiven you for that. And you've claimed 1 John 1, 9, praise the Lord for that. But let me say, that doesn't glorify the Lord. 
in regard to not showing forth what He has done. It's not about us doing good. It's about God being allowed to show Himself for who He is and what He has accomplished. So every time we sin, we are a dishonor to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We play into Satan's attempt to cause us to not have power, not to be a channel of blessing, and to not allow people to see the glory of God. Now, folks, you, you are been brought up in a generation that frankly thinks that you have a right to some aspects of the world. I'm talking about believers. And there's so much defeat in Christians' lives today. And folks, the churches of America are not glorifying God. They are not showing the fact of what God can do. That ought to be, it's not just because you don't want to have sin in your life, and that's important. But you need to say, my Savior is so wonderful, I want to declare to the world that Jesus saves and I want my life to be a proof of it. That ought to be your motive. That ought to be your deep desire. I want victory for the sake of Christ to be seen for the fullness of what He did at the cross. And so we've got to get rid of that kind of thinking. And, uh, and if we have... Any kind of thinking that, well, this is a sinful culture I live in, it's the way I was brought up, it's the circumstances I've been through, it's because I'm so tired, all these different excuses. Do you realize how many times we make excuses for our problems? If my parents just hadn't, or if I could just have more of this, or if I just hadn't had this kind of pattern in my past, if that hadn't happened to me, and by the way, some of you had bad things happen to you, I understand that, but... That does not take away what Christ can do. The minute you make excuse, you're in trouble. So we need to instead turn around and look at what Christ's work is in relation to the believer. Begin with verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. The idea here... And I want you to get this, and this is the simple point. Jesus Christ provided salvation for you 2,000 plus years ago because He did what? He died for you and your sins, right? How many of your sins did He die for? Past, present, and future. Ever said that before in soul winning a time? Okay. Um, all right. Do you believe that? So that means then that the very Spirit of Jesus, which was divine, in His humanity, in which He had the right then to identify with us in our humanity, Jesus Christ took you in His soul. He's the eternal God. You didn't exist yet, but in Him you did. And so you, 2,000 plus years ago, were identified with Jesus Christ at the cross what it says. You were immersed into Him. You were placed into Him. I don't know have words that properly can dissect that theologically. It just simply says it. We were all identified with Him 2,000 years ago. One of the things that will really change some of your thinking when you think about Christ on the cross, realize you were there. You were there. That's personal. That'll help you love the Savior. 
every stinking sin, excuse the expression, you've ever committed, he was feeling it. And I want to say this, he's eternal. There is an eternal reality. Now, he won the victory, but he still bears the sting of our life. That's why he's ever making intercession for you. That's why there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's why he is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He knows you, he understands you, and he suffered for you, and he fully and completely, as though you were there on that cross, identified with you. Folks, that's a tremendous thought. That's the essence of your Christianity. So he says, know ye not. Now, you've got to know this several times, the word know. That's why this first point is very key. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So I died with Christ. Spiritually, my sins, my inner person was represented and I died. Now, again, you can only understand that spiritually because the Bible said that you accept it. One uh, Sunday morning, uh, Mabel Francis relates, uh, she stepped into church, and God gave me just an understanding of Romans 7, 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. All through the service, God was saying to me, through the offering of my body, you're made dead to the old self that you might be joined to another. I saw that through this new relationship, I had come to inherit it all. His death was mine. His burial was mine. His resurrection was mine. His ascension was mine. He transferred all of this to me. I was to live in heavenly places in Christ. Now, I want you to, you know, we get thrilled when we think of all these truths when it comes to Christ, but they all relate to us. And this changes your whole perspective. That little prepositional phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, is used over and over and over in the New Testament. You are in Christ, and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, He is in you. My friends, you're not just some little whippersnapper sitting there in all of your problems with not much hope. You are in the ascended Christ, and the ascended Christ is in you. That is fact, and it's time we wake up to all that Christ purchased for us on the cross. It's a glorious reality. And so let's look at verses 4 and 5, the union we have with Christ in His death. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism unto death. What does burial tell you? You're dead. Okay, that's why the burial is important. You're just dead. Marley is dead. <laughs> well, Marley came back. Uh, he looks better. Uh, is your throat okay after all that? No. <laughs> uh, but Marley was dead. When we're dead and buried, I mean, it's done. You know, people don't come clawing out of, I, I know there's some stories, but I mean, the whole idea of a burial is that you are dead, okay? And uh, so we are buried uh, with him by baptism into his death. By the way, we were identified with Christ as his body lay in that tomb. I don't understand all of it. Isn't that something? Then like as Christ was raised up from the dead, 
by the glory of the Father, even so also we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. Now, folks, don't you marvel when you see the resurrected Christ in the Scripture? Walks through that door, you know, the, the disciples, you see his power. You realize that he, they're seeing a touch of the glory. And then you look at his glorified body in Revelation chapter 1, and it's awe-inspiring. You see it in Revelation chapter 19 when he comes back on that white horse, and we all just rejoice. Well, you're identified with him. That resurrection is your resurrection. You are going to have, 1 John chapter says, 1 John says that you will be raised like him. You're going to have a glorified body. We have inherited all that Christ has done. Therefore, the Spirit of God in you is in your regenerated spirit wants to show forth the resurrected Christ and not only the resurrected Christ but the ascended Christ. That's why folks it is so pitiful when we keep getting defeated by the flesh. Every one of you have the potential of showing forth the fact that I am indwelt by the spirit of the living God who wants to manifest the power of the resurrected Christ in my life. That's what it said. In the latter part of verse 4, we are to walk in what? Newness of life. Resurrected life. I remember when that really got a hold of me some years back. It just was refreshing. Wow. God wants me to live the resurrected life. Christ doesn't sin. Christ lives in glory. Christ has all power. He has all authority. I can walk in newness of life. I, I have the likeness of His resurrection in verse 5. And so this is a wonderful, wonderful thing, a totally new experience. Now, folks, what you under, need to understand is when you died with Christ and you accepted Him, you died with Christ, were buried, resurrected, He died for all the world. And when you accepted it and it was then imputed to you, you were born again. You were regenerated. That spirit that was dead in trespasses and sins was resurrected. You now have His life. You have that divine seed in your heart. You have the spirit of the living God. You are created in righteousness and true holiness. That's the only reason the Spirit of God can indwell you. He would not indwell sin. The real you, and you, I preached on this last semester, the real you is holy. The real you is righteous. I'm not talking just imputed righteousness. I am talking about reality. The righteousness of God is within you. And God Himself is within you. See, you've got to get your eyes off yourself. The old flesh is hopeless, but I am telling you, the glory of who we are in Christ is just a marvelous thing. And so the old man is crucified with Christ. Now, what I want you to see here in, is in verse 6. I love this. Knowing this, knowing, here we have that word again, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him. In other words, the old man is dead. Say it again dead. Okay, 
Don't be thinking, you know, I'm just like the lost world. No, you're not. You may be acting like that, but you're not. The real you is not. You're a new man. You're righteous. You're born again. You're a new creation. That's fact, folks. Know this. That's what it says. This is a strong encouragement here to know this. You are a new man. And because the old man has crucified him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. What's the body of sin? That's our sinful flesh. Still the sin principle is in us. Our spirit is regenerated. But our mind, will, and emotions in our body are still Adam's effect is on us, right? Any of you have trouble with your emotions? All the girls should raise their hand. No, <laughs> it's the guys that have the bigger problem. Let me tell you, girls, they get on you, but I tell you what. Anyway, I won't get off on that tangent. <laughs> uh, you ever had any troubles with your body? Ever any troubles with your mind, with your will? <coughs> Discouraging, isn't it? Sin principle is there. But I want you to see, well, what does this mean then? Knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that we understand. It's dead. We're alive <clears throat> unto Christ. That the body of sin might be destroyed. Well, when you look into the original there, it means to be rendered ineffective. It no longer has the reigning power. Now remember, when your spirit was dead in trespasses and sins, and the sin principle of your flesh was like all of us, we're, we're born with Adam's nature, <clears throat> do you think that sin had total dominion over you? Sure. Even if you were decent in life and taught to be live a fairly upstanding life, you were still all about yourself. You were totally under the domination of your flesh. Now you're a new creation. And so because of what Christ has done, because of the victory that we have been identified with Christ, that we're no longer under the power of sin, we are dead to sin, Christ has won the victory, we are alive into the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the, this body of sin is rendered ineffective. It no longer should be the master. Now I want you to get this. Isn't it sad when a Christian lets it be the master? You've heard the illustration over and over, and I think it's a good one. You work for a, a terrible, I think I even used it last semester, you work for a terrible boss. And I have worked for one terrible boss. And I know what that's like. You just feel like you're uh, in prison. You don't even want to go back to work. And, uh, of course, you could quit anytime you wanted to, but you keep working, and so you have to do what they tell you to do, right? Finally, you've had enough. What do you do? You quit. And uh, your boss calls you up a couple weeks later and says, get in here. What are you doing? Well, I don't work for you anymore. I said, get in here. Sorry, not coming. I work for so-and-so. I have a new employer. I'm not coming in. That's a good illustration. Your flesh isn't your master anymore. The God of the universe indwells you. You are now alive spiritually in your soul, in your spirit. Yes, you still have the sin principle in your mind, will, and emotions, but that can all be conquered through our, your new master. How many times do you see Paul saying, Paul, a servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ? He loved it. 
it isn't isn't bad to be Christ's servant. It's really glorious. Because when you're Christ's servant, then what are you not serving any longer? The sin principle. You see that? And we don't have to. Because of the victory that we have, the domination is gone. We only are under the flesh because we decide to be. But we don't have to be. Before you were saved, you had to be. Now, you don't need to be. Now listen, those habits, those things, that's your own choice. But the victory is right there. That's no longer you. Your flesh is no longer your master. So let's look at verse 6 again. Knowing this, get this in your mind, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed or rendered ineffective. Why? What's the purpose? That we henceforth should not serve sin. I'm telling you, when you wake up to this fact that I'm not under this boss anymore. I've got the king of the universe in my life. Jesus, I was identified with Jesus at the cross. He died. He died to all the claims of the law on me. I have been saved by grace. I, he died, I died to all of sin and its sin principle. I have been totally saved. I am regenerated. I will be able to live in eternity because I am both holy and righteous in my spirit now and I will forever. That means I have eternal life. What am I doing listening to the old boss? He's a nothing compared to my new Lord. You need to get a hold of this because Satan just can't stand you knowing this. Ever noticed how you get a hold of some of these truths and you lose them? If you don't walk with the Lord for a little bit, Satan will do everything he can to confuse you again. Because once you get on the ground of this, you start having victory day after day after day after day after day. Because you understand the master you have lives within you, and you do not have to serve sin. And uh, it has been rendered ineffective. Um, As Blackaby says, that's the picture to keep in mind as we hear Paul say, you are dead to sin. Sin is no longer your master. You don't have to respond anymore when sin tries to command you. In the cross, God dealt with the whole root system of sin so that sin's power over you has been totally broken. You never again have to sin. We do because we're not glorified, but we don't have to. That's a profound thought. Did you know you really can have habitual victory? You know, you look at folks that, that you know have walked with God, and you're just, and it's not a fake. There's a lot of fakes, but it's not fake when it's, when, when some, because that can be your reality. In the cross, as I said, you, you never have again to sin. That is so profound. You don't have to sin. You now have the full power to choose what you'll do. Before the fall, man was able to sin. After the fall... Man was not able not to sin. After salvation, salvation believers are not are able not to sin. When glorified, believers will not be able to sin. That's once we get to heaven. So we were able not to sin. What a tremendous thing it is. We are freed, and uh, we are now freed from the claims of sin in our lives. Verse 12 says... Um, uh, in, I'm sorry, Romans 8:12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh uh, 
to live after the flesh. Can I take a moment just to step aside? Brother Ingram's touched on this a little bit. Your generation keeps playing around with sin in the name of trying to do ministry. People that really want to glorify God ought to be so thrilled that sin doesn't have to have dominion over you. You want to get as far away from it as you can and the world that promotes it. You see, young people that get a hold of the victory in Christ, that understand what it means to have that fellowship and realize fully what Christ has done, they don't have any time for anything that will take them back to that old slave master. And they want their people to come into a church that's going to challenge them to victory and to be freed from those old addictions and freed from all the heartache and all the relationship problems. We are building in defeat to our churches because we're catering to the very things that bring people down. I'll tell you what, when you get a hold of truth, it makes all the difference. So all believers are free to live victoriously. That's wonderful. All right, so number one, you've got to understand the truth. If you don't understand it, you can't do anything with it. Number two, reckoning the victory. We need to reckon the victory. What does that mean? Well, let me just, I want you to think with me. You're doing a good job. Let's stay right here. If you don't, I'll make you switch things again. Okay, that'll be my threat. We did work on a little more coordination, but we'll talk about that later. Now, what was the essence of what Pastor Ingram preached last night? Is being sort of just normal and a good Christian okay? What was the answer to that? A resounding no. Well, I'm going to say it in a different way. Living the carnal Christian life that may look really good is not acceptable. And this is what a lot of people think is okay. They call someone spiritual just if they're at least a decent Christian. No, a person who's spiritual is spirit-empowered. And um, so here's four characteristics that uh, Andrew Murray gives from 1 Corinthians 3 about the carnal state. Now think with me about this, because we're saying that we should be claiming and reckoning the victory that we have in Christ, not just living sort of a decent Christian life, which is a dangerous place to be like Samson this morning. Carnal life is a life of protracted infancy. Isn't it sad that pastors have to preach the milk all the time? No, we have to. We have new Christians. That's wonderful. But think about it. You're going to hear a number of times that you just surrender. Wouldn't it be wonderful? We have to surrender every day, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we went on from that? Okay. The carnal life is a state in which sin and failure are still master. Some of you have no confidence whatsoever that you're going to have victory in a certain area. You're carnal. You're not spiritual. The carnal state can coexist with great spiritual gifts. This is one of the things we find in college, and I want you to get this. Some of you cry out to the Lord before you preach, you fellows, and God anoints you, shows you His gifting, and you think you're spiritual. No, you, like Samson, <laughs> were you were in trouble, and so you were pushed off on those pillars and God did something for you, okay? But that doesn't mean you're walking in consistent victory. I have frankly seen over the years the pride and arrogancy of thinking spiritual gifting at times equals genuine, humble spirituality. Beware of that. 
Ladies, same thing can happen to you. Some of you can just, you can have a heart to pray, you can have a heart to do things, but in your regular life, you're as carnal as carnal can be. And it's very confusing to people when it looks like you're a spiritual person, and yet the way you talk and act in the essence of life is carnal. And by the way, can preachers be carnal? Oh, yes, they can. God will bless the gift because He loves the sheep. But uh, the gift should be empowered by a genuine spirituality. And then, carnality is, is a state in which it's impossible to receive spiritual truth. Now, may I be kind, and I'm, I'm, you know, this could be presented, I'm sure, far more strongly. But if there just isn't a desire to hear this, then uh, there's a carnality there. You're satisfied. You're okay. There's something in your life holding you back. And so the carnal state needs to be an unacceptable and tragic existence for a believer. Uh, it's only being partially controlled, somewhat in submission to the Lord, but not really experiencing the victory that comes when we're spirit-empowered. And listen, this is the state of good people. This is going to be the state of people in your churches, but you won't see God work. Listen, God wants an ongoing, continuous revival. So we have to understand we've got a cancer of carnality beyond what we want to admit. And young people, I couldn't be more happy with how you're doing. But we've got a cancer of carnality in a group like this for we should be experiencing far more, don't you think? And so uh, we've really got to get a hold of not being discouraged and have Satan put us down. But on the other hand, we need to have a, a holy brokenness about how much we need him. I encourage you to read the two volumes set about the spiritual uh, life of uh, Hudson Taylor. And in that, uh, right as he got a hold of Romans 6, he writes a letter to his sister um, in 1869. Well, dearie, my mind has been has greatly exercised for six or eight months past, feeling the need personally and for our mission of more holiness, life, power in our souls. But personal need stood first and was the greatest. I felt the ingratitude, the danger the sin of not living nearer to God. I prayed, agonized, fasted, strove, made resolutions, read the word more diligently, sought more time for meditation, but all without avail. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. I knew that if only I could abide in Christ, all would be well, but I could not. I would begin the day with prayer, determined not to take my eyes off him for a moment, but pressure of duty, sometimes very trying and constant interruptions, apt to be so wearing, caused me to forget. Then one's nerves get so fretted in this climate that temptations to irritability, hard thoughts, and sometimes unkind words are all the more difficult to control. Each day brought its register of sin and failure of lack of power. To will indeed was present with me, but how to perform I found not. Can you relate to that? What did he learn? All of a sudden it dawned on him to rest on the Savior. And he realized that he was looking to himself, and that's always failure. He learned to reckon these things to be so, and his life transformed, and that's why every province of China was reached. Now, here are some of the wrong thinking. I want to quickly go through this about 
what it means to experience victory. And I'm going to go quickly through them, but you might want to jot some of these down because this is where a lot of people fall into traps. How do we deal with carnality? Well, some regard sanctification as a matter of course. Um, and so it just it's going to happen. There are theological systems that teach that. It's just inevitable. You're going to be getting stronger and stronger as a Christian. Now, is God constantly working on you? Sure, because He loves you. He chastens. He's, he's endeavoring to get a hold of you. But, you know, I, I know Christians. Brother Ingram knows Christians. Sixty years saved, and new converts of three months are far stronger spiritually than those 60-year-old believers. No, the Bible says, give all diligence. Watch and pray. You wouldn't need all of the oratory imperatives in the Scripture. Regarding sanctification as a matter of gradual growth, two harmful effects. Leads Christians to expect no positive holiness for a long period of time. Well, I'm just a freshman. You know, maybe by the time I get to, to be a senior, uh, I'll really get on the victory pathway. How you seniors doing? <laughs> okay. Uh, no, it's steps of growth. It's not a gradual, long-term thing. I'm telling you, if you don't learn what it means to walk in the victory you have in Christ, you're going to lead people to the Lord, and they, within a year, are going to be ahead of you because they're going to truly learn to trust the Lord. So this gradual growth thing, yes, we mature. We, we get more understanding. There is more depth of faith that we have because we are growing. There's experience. All of these things help. But my friends, we can live in the power of God right now. And that's why new converts can become multiplying disciple leaders within a matter of months if we lead them to that. But you can't lead them to that if you're in this gradual getting over carnality type mentality. It prevents them from taking any definite steps toward holiness that would lead to an improvement in their condition. Then uh, there is this actual uh, out there in some aspects of Calvinism, there's the... Um, uh, the idea that eventually our sin principle in our lives will be eradicated before we get to heaven. Boy, I would like that, wouldn't you? However, what does 1 John 1.8 say? If we say that we have no sin, we what? Deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I don't have time to get into all of that. Um, and then this is where most of you have been at, certainly where I was at, suppression of the old nature. Ever heard the white dog, black dog, wherever you feed the most, and you know, you got to just work hard, get over the flesh, come on, pull up your bootstraps. You pull up your bootstraps, what do you do? As I mentioned last semester, you fall, okay? Try doing that. Uh, no, you can't do that. But um, it's sanctification by works. Griffith Thomas says this, the supreme danger of the Christian life is that of legalism, for there is an inevitable tendency to assume that although justification is by faith, sanctification is somehow by struggle, that although the sinner is powerless in regard to salvation, he is not so in the matter of holiness. He thinks that he cannot be sanctified unless largely aided by his own efforts. The fact is we have steps of faith we have to take. We have to go against the flesh. But no step is ever taken in victory without the power of God. It is what God does and not us. 
and great discouragement comes from that. All right, let's look here. We talked about reckoning. Look at verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be what? Dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, this is so important. We just did our best to quickly go over what this passage says about the fact that you are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. You died with Him. You were buried with Him. You rose with Him. You ascended with Him. He has given you now the sealing of the Spirit of God, the indwelling of the Spirit of God. You are a new creation. These are all facts. Sin no longer is your master. You are now alive unto Christ. It is your own decision that you don't have to make to yield to the sin principle, even though you have it in your body and in your soul. Your spirit is regenerated. And so to be able to have victory, you've got to know these things, but you've got to reckon them. Now, what does that mean? Reckon is the idea to take into account, to compute. You've heard simple... Um, um, Illustrations of this is sort of a bookkeeping kind, kind of a term, all right? Uh, let's suppose that Brother Ingram said, you know, I like Pastor Van Gilderen, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to find out what his account number is, and he puts into my account $10,000. Well, that would be nice. I mean, it's fine if you'd like to do that, brother. <laughs> so he puts into my account $10,000, and I certainly could use $10,000. And so I get this notice that, wow, this man named Pastor Ingram put $10,000 into my account. Don't you love it when somebody does that to your uh, student account? You know, it's a thrilling thing. However, I know that I had $10.31 in that account prior to the $10,000. Okay, I don't, would never get that low, but I'm just giving that as an illustration. All right, so I have some needs and I need to buy something very critically uh, that's critical for my family. I have my checkbook, and I think, you know, I only got $10.31. I can't buy this. And I just feel so bad. And we have all kinds of problems. And uh, I mean, maybe some medical things, or my house is about to blow up or something, you know. And, <laughs> and, and I just let the whole thing fall apart. Why? Because I know it says I have 10000 but I don't really reckon it, account it to be true. I just write a check on my $10.31. Folks, that's what we do all the time. Do you realize what's in your account? All the things that we just said we're supposed to know? You see, the idea is that you are to account this to be true. Now, here's important. This morning we said, I die daily. Paul was not going around saying, I die, I die, I die. <laughs> no, no, that's not what he was saying. He was reckoning the fact that he was already yeah. dead. Therefore, he said no to the flesh based upon what he had. Yeah. There's a huge difference. Uh, it is so important that we understand we're already dead to sin. It is no longer my master. I, am living, uh, I can live in great victory. So it's not about me making myself dead. I count on the fact that God has done it. It is in my account. I am justified. I have the righteousness of Christ. The slave master has been done away in my life. I am 
a new creation. I count on this to be true, and I make my decisions based upon the fact I'm a new creation in Christ instead of I'm just such a mess. If you look at your flesh, you're a mess. If you look at your spirit, whoa, man, this is pretty neat. You know, you can go from discouragement to encouragement in a nanosecond by reckoning. What am I doing getting so down? Why do I feel so hopeless? This is ridiculous. Look who I am. I'm a child of the king. I'm a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I'm going to reign with him. He wants me now to have leadership and be a deliverer in this world. What am I thinking? And I'm telling you, boom, like that, the Spirit of God will change your thinking. Satan comes along, believe me, he attacks preachers, and he wants us to get discouraged. But I have learned in just a second I can be in a different frame of mind when I reckon these things. Because they are true. It is reality. It's as real as you sitting here today. It is what is in you. It is what God has done for you. It is that which you just need to embrace with all of your heart. I mentioned about in Christ 164 times. We, uh, that is mentioned. We are in Him. We don't need to win the victory uh, by suppressing sinful desires. We need to deal with them by God's grace. It's not an eradication of the old nature. It is allowing our new creation to take over. And uh, we need to claim the freedom that we have. One of the things you'll read a lot of stories of after the Civil War was over, down south, there was a lot of sad things that happened. And a lot of slaves were taken advantage of. And, uh, but the news would get to them. And you know what the good news was? Slavery was done away with. The Emancipation Proclamation had been made. And the minute they believed it, and reckoned it to be so, they could walk away from their masters. If they had the protection, obviously, to do it, they could walk away from their masters and they were free. Did you know that many live for some period of time under domination of, uh, of uh, unfortunately, their masters that took a, uh, advantage of them? All right, so we're to know and we are to reckon all believers are dead to sin in Christ and united to His holy life. We must count on all these realities to be reality. And now let's look at verses 12 and 13 and 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. That's ridiculous for us to do that. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Third point, receive the victory by faith. How did you get saved? You understood the gospel, you agreed with it, you reckoned it to be true, and you did what? You received Christ, you trusted Him, right? How do you get the same victories in sanctification. Understand the good news about what God has done for you. Reckon it to be true. Agree with it and then receive it by faith and start acting on it. And so what it says, trust God by just saying no to the flesh. And guess what will happen? You'll have victory over the flesh when you're depending upon Him, not trusting yourself. This is what you call yielding to the filling of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, walking by faith, all of these different terms. 
Many of you have experienced this. What does your flesh say about knocking on the door? Doesn't like it, does it? What does your sin principle say? Worry about yourself rather than the soul that's behind the door, right? Fear takes a hold of you. All right, at that moment, you say, no, wait a second. I know the gospel is powerful. I'm a new creature in Christ. And my flesh doesn't have to have control over me. And I right now, based upon who I am in Christ, I am going to take the step and I'm going to trust him to overcome my flesh and give me victory and you knock on the door. And have you noticed that when the person comes and if you're looking to the Lord and you're trusting him, you start saying things and doing things that you finish that time you say, who was that? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Haven't you walked away from a door, especially after you led somebody to the Lord, and you're walking about five feet up? Why? Because Christ was there. This was amazing. That wasn't me. Precisely, it wasn't you. Temptation could possibly be there. And immediately, you don't even start considering a temptation. You realize, I'm in Christ. I don't have to say yes to that. I don't have to be, that master is gone. Lord, I am trusting you. And you make no provision for the flesh. Uh, you don't even go into that way as 1 Corinthians talks about. And guess what will happen? You will have victory. In fact, the more you're with the Lord, the more time you spend in prayer, the more you understand that these things are, are true, you don't even have to almost say no to it. Because you are having the powerful victory of Christ in your life. And so it says, don't yield your members, instruments. Don't let that old master, he doesn't have any right to you. You can make the decision based by faith, I'm not doing that, I'm not thinking that, or I'm going to get that right, I don't care how I feel. And God will enable you because you are in Christ, you have the victory that is, is you are a, a new creature, and you can do things you would never dream you would do. Now, folks, this is important that we understand. God wants our bodies, our mind, will, and emotions to be powerfully used by God. As uh, Charles Hodge, the commentator, says, we should yield ourselves to God for sin shall not have dominion. It is not a hopeless struggle in which the believer is engaged, but one in which victory is certain. It is a joyful confidence which the apostle here expresses that the power of sin has been effectively broken and the triumph of holiness effectually secured by the work of Christ. Here's a statement you've heard before. Most believers live in regular defeat with occasional victory. However, God wants us to live in consistent victory, surprised by defeat. Let me say that again. Most believers live in regular defeat with occasional victory. However, God wants us to live in regular victory, surprised by defeat. And God will work. And so it is a continued submission to the Lord. So here's really the key. Who is your master? If you're having trouble with consistent failure, then what, do you, what can you probably say about your consistent living? Is it carnal or spiritual? Carnal. And who is probably the one you're listening to? The flesh or the spirit? The flesh. Even the things you do for God. Your motives and heart is not for the glory of God. 
you have got yourself caught in a carnal existence thinking that as long as I'm doing pretty well and I follow the rules and I'm, you know, have some kind of devotions and all, I'm a pretty good Christian. And then you wonder why defeat after defeat after defeat. That's why this morning, what was the conclusion to the message? We need to be all in, totally surrendered. Lord, I'm your bondservant. I yield myself to you. I know these things to be true. I'm counting on them being true. Therefore, I am believing that you as the powerful master will enable me to do everything you've commanded me to do. And I want to live in that victory for your glory. And I don't have to live in that defeat. And I want to prove what a great salvation I have by a 24-7 victory. Now, I'm telling you, young people, if we would have more and more of that kind of victory, you, you would not stop the work of God within a group like this. But it is brokenness. It is an honesty about our needs. We've got to put aside our pride. We've got to uh, get our wrong thinking out, not accept any kind of the normal life. We've got to realize that this matter of living for God is an all-out complete surrender. Those little things that God dealt with you about last night or this morning, you haven't gotten rid of them, you're not going to experience this. That's why we always have to preach on sin first. Why? We've got to have a person deal with it. Then the illumination begins to come and you go, whoa, I need to reckon these things to be true. I can live in victory. That's what God wants. The believer is either a slave to the flesh or a bond slave of Christ. There's no middle ground. Where are you today? Let's bow for prayer. Young people, I want to commend you for your good attention here as I taught these things. Let me just really ask you, where are you? Where are you? Are you living with just regular defeat and discouragement, with some blessing, feeling okay about yourself? Or do you know what I'm talking about? You understand these truths. You are reckoning them to be true, and you are seeing regular, glorious victory over the flesh. Old things that are passing away. All things are becoming new. God is working. You're understanding truth. You're, you're getting a confidence in your life. Which side are you? It's one or the other. There's no in-between. As was mentioned, it's either God's thinking or Satan's thinking. It's either uh, divine confidence and trusting Him or human thinking. Where are you? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you could honestly say, I'm in victory right now. I am experiencing the presence of Christ, and I have confidence, and God has given me great direct victory even today. Could you raise your hand?